welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hi, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week we are sharing the audio taken from our recent psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall held on January the 15th, 2021. This was our initial scene-setting discussion, and the panellists are Adele Framer, also known as Alto Strata, founder of Surviving Antidepressants, Luke Montague, co-founder of the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry, Swapnil Gupta, a psychiatrist with a special interest in deprescribing, and John Reed, professor of psychology and chair of the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. Our next event in this series will be held on March the 12th, 2021, and registration details will be available on Madden America in early February. Welcome. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today for uh, our first in a new discussion series dedicated to psychiatric drug withdrawal. And on behalf of our partners, the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry and the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, we're so grateful that so many of you decided to join us. Um, my name is James. I work for Madden America as the host of the MIA podcast. And before we get started today, I want to touch on what we hope to achieve with these discussions. So our aim really with this series is to get to discuss honestly and openly the many issues faced by those wanting to come off psychiatric drugs safely. So partnering with the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry and the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, we hope to collect together experience and knowledge that will add to an important societal discussion. So we aim to explore what we do and don't know about safe withdrawal from antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines and stimulants. And we will be discussing the knowledge, skills and experience necessary to support those who might be having a difficult time getting off psychiatric drugs. And by doing this, we hope to stimulate further discussion between service users and prescribers. And so as this is the first in our series, what we hope to do today is to have a scene-setting discussion, and I'm delighted to have with us a panel of people who can help us explore some of the issues. Um, but before we get underway with an introduction to the panel, I, I do want to mention the people who work hard behind the scenes to make these calls possible. Firstly, we have Shira Collings, and Shira works with Madden America Continuing Education, and she'll be making sure that the event runs smoothly today. We also have Lucy Fernandez. Um, Lucy's looking after the chats and moderating viewer questions. Uh, Lucy's the administrator of the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. So we have an hour and a half today, and the first hour is devoted to a panel discussion, and then the final 30 minutes for viewer questions. And I just want to talk about dealing with questions for a minute. So please do feel free to ask questions, and we will be selecting questions for the panel in the final part of the session. We won't be able to address all of your questions in the time that we have, but if we don't get to your question, we will try and make sure it's built into the discussion in some of our future sessions. To ask a question, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window. The reason for this is that questions placed in the chat are easy to, easy to miss. So if you put them in the Q&A selection, then Lucy will be able to, Lucy will be able to find them. Um, please bear in mind that anything you write in the chat or in the Q&A can be seen by everybody. I also have to say that 
the panel won't be able to respond to questions surrounding individual circumstances with withdrawal. Now, I know this will disappoint some of you to hear, but addressing individual difficulties in this kind of forum is very hard because there are so many variables and complexities. And before we go any further, it's most important to say that if you are someone considering coming off your psychiatric drugs, please, please never stop suddenly or abruptly. If at all possible, please seek advice from a knowledgeable professional. And the panel today and for future discussions is not providing medical advice or making specific recommendations regarding withdrawal from psychiatric drugs. Our aim really is to explore and discuss. Um, for those of you watching who might be new to these issues, we have a page of resources that you can visit to find out more. And this can be found by visiting the website madinamerica forward slash PDW. And I'll try and add that in the chat in a minute. Um, so I hope that's all clear. Uh, thrilled you can join us, all of you, and onto the panel. Uh, and thrilled also to say we have a wealth of experience with us today. So without any further ado from me, uh, I'd like to ask the panel members to introduce yourselves. And could you also say a little bit about what brought you to your interest in withdrawal issues? And uh, Adele, could we start with you? Sure. Thank you, James. Um, I went off Paxil in uh, 2004 over a few weeks. Um, I was under the supervision of um, a uh, outpatient psychiatric clinic. I um, developed uh, severe withdrawal. I spoke to them about it. Uh, I they didn't seem to know what to do, and uh, consequently, um, I, I, I requested. Uh, uh, reinstatement of uh, paroxetine, but I didn't get it. And I, of course, you know, being a patient, I didn't know exactly what to do at that point. So consequently, I end up ended up getting uh, protracted withdrawal syndrome, and it took me eleven years to recover. Um, and I believe that I might be the longest documented recovery from uh, uh, from antidepressant withdrawal syndrome. Um, so uh, in the course of my difficulties, I very reluctantly joined a, an online support group, Paxil Progress at that time, and uh, where people who had had similar problems were sharing information and um, doing, doing their, you know, really doing their own research. And, uh, and I was doing a lot of reading, um, in the medical literature myself to try and figure out what was going on. Um, so, uh, at that time there were probably a half a dozen or a dozen similar peer support sites on the web. Uh, that was in uh, around 2005. And, um, it, it, that was the only place where people could come to discuss uh, this problem that they were having. I, almost all of them said that they were unable to find a doctor who would was any help at all. And uh, and at that point, uh, people were also discussing, you know, like what caused withdrawal. And the conclusion was that they had all tapered too fast. Um, so there were. Uh, um, there was some discussion about tapering at that time also. Uh, then 
after I, I was a member there for perhaps six years and the uh, site um, as online communities do uh, declined and uh, other members asked me to, to start another site. So I started survivingantidepressants.org in uh, 2011. And uh, currently the site has 14,000 members. Um, I designed it so that we could collect case histories and there are about 6,000 case histories of people tapering and of uh, withdrawal syndrome and recovery from withdrawal as well um, on my website, which um, we're starting to do research based on that, uh, those case histories. And uh, I am fortunate to be co-author with Michael Hentgartner and other co-authors on a paper that was just published about protracted withdrawal syndrome, um, surveying 69 cases of protracted withdrawal syndrome, which is now the authoritative paper on the subject. And that was just published uh, on Christmas Eve. Thanks, Adele. Thanks. Uh, many of the viewers will uh, know you well and know your work, and uh, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, Luke, could we move on oh, to you next? People, people might know me as Altastrada. I've uh, I've used that pseudonym. I'm sorry. I should have introduced myself. I'm sorry for interrupting you, James. No worries. Over to you, Luke. Adele, I, I knew you for many years as Altastrada, and I always wondered who it was behind uh, that particular uh, name. And I was delighted to meet you in London couple of years ago, we had a very good lunch together. Um, my story, similarly to Adele, started with taking these drugs. I was on um, initially Prozac. I was given it after a bad reaction to an operation that I had in my early 20s um, and um, just left on it by my GP, um, suffered side effects, Was had other drugs added to it. Eventually, sort of 10 years later, I was on I think four different drugs, um, you know, two of them to counteract the side effects of the other two. One included a sleeping pill. And uh, I was back in the UK. I'd spent some time in the States and um, I was seeing a doctor and I said, listen, I'm getting really forgetful. I'm not sure these drugs are doing me any good. And why, why am I on them anyway? Um, and he said, well, Luke, you can come off the fast way or the slow way. And I said, well, I'm, I'm busy running a business. I'd like to come off the fast way. And he said, great, write me a big check and you can come into this hospital and, um, and I'll take you off in a detox. And at that point, I was, uh, I was running a, a big film school um, and, um, you know, had a lot of other things to think about. And I thought, I'll, I'll just be out in a couple of days. No problem. And, uh, and I was taken off cold turkey, which is something that should never happen. And uh, my world fell apart. I couldn't function at all. I spent the next three years stuck at home, unable to work, unable to leave the house. I used to look up at the sky and think all kinds of crazy things were happening. I mean, it was a, it was a horrific experience. But gradually, I started to get better. Um, I'm in the UK, and um, I'm lucky to have various connections with uh, people in, in Parliament over here, uh, including my father. And, uh, and we started to make contact with the people that we thought could make a difference. Uh, and that kicked off with a conference that was held by the BMA back in 2014. Uh, and for the first time, the British Medical Association over here brought doctors together to discuss this issue of withdrawal from these drugs. And that was really the starting point 
for quite a lot of change over here. Um, at that time, I teamed up with James Davis, um, who some of you will know, who's written a book called Cracked, Why Psychiatry Does More Harm Than Good, highly recommended. And, um, and James and I set up, co-founded CEP in the UK, the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry. And as my background was in partly in film, we made quite a lot of films on that website. If you haven't been to the site, uh, it's quite a good one. We've gathered lots of research. We've got patient testimonials. We've got support for people looking to come off, uh, cepuk.org. And um, after the BMA conference, uh, we got involved with a parliamentary group in the UK. So there is now uh, a parliamentary group that is focused on prescribed drug dependence. It's called the APPG for Prescribed Drug Dependence. And we've been lobbying government over the past five years to bring about changes, and in particular, to bring about services to help people to come off. And this led, uh, around about three years ago, to a big review that was done over here in the UK uh, by Public Health England, which came out with various rec uh, recommendations, recognised the scale of the problem, you know, the vast numbers of people, 25% of the adult population taking one of these drugs, antidepressants, sleeping pills, um, opioids, gabapentinoids, um, and they've made various recommendations, which the Department of Health, but in particular NHS England over here, are in the process of looking at and hopefully implementing. I can't too, talk too much about exactly what's going on because we're right in the midst of it, but we are quietly confident that there will be changes here, that there will be opportunities for people to uh, access services to help them come off and hopefully in due course a helpline and other things as well. So I spend part of my time uh, trying to make sure that that happens in the UK with obviously the help and support of, of lots of, of good colleagues, uh, including John. Thank you so much, Luke. And again, you know, thank you for your, all your sterling work in this area. Um, Swapnil, could we could we move on to you next? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much to Madden America for facilitating this very very important conversation. I I think this is the way to go: putting people together and having an open, transparent discussion about this topic, uh, because. I think medical professionals really, really need more help in the area. Uh, so I am a psychiatrist by training. I've uh, worked both in, in India as well as in, uh, in two different cities in the US. I, I worked in Brooklyn for a little while in New Haven and I'm back in New York City right now. Uh, I work at the, uh, an outpatient psychiatry clinic uh, of a large hospital here. How I initially got interested in this work was probably from the other end of what Adele and Luke's experience has been. Uh, as I was looking at the number of prescriptions that patients were receiving, I found that a lot of times people were on medications that didn't seem to be doing anything or uh, that were there for no clear reason at all. And uh, when we started tapering them off, I found somewhat, uh, not even somewhat, a huge discrepancy between, uh, you know, what the patient's experience was of tapering the drugs off, uh, especially antidepressants, and what the textbooks said. 
So classic medical literature says that most antidepressant withdrawal is a, is a mild self-limiting uh, syndrome and it typically disappears between four to six weeks, which in practical experience is, is largely untrue. It might be true for a very, very small percentage of people. And I often found myself in the situation where I just didn't know what to do when, uh, when patients were really struggling with withdrawal. So I'm really grateful to be a part of this community and to uh, learn from the other panelists. I've learned a lot of talking with them, reading their work. And uh, I, uh, you know, right now my, uh, my focus is helping people taper off medications should they want to do that. And uh, the, the framework that I use for that kind of work is building a strong therapeutic alliance, exploring different sources of information together, and building an individualized plan for the patient, and adjusting doses as we go, and maintaining a really flexible plan. So once again, I'm really, really happy and grateful to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to a great discussion today. Thank you so much, Swapnil. And again, you know, you you, uh, it, you literally wrote the book "Deprescribing in Psychiatry." So, you know, I I hope we get to uh, talk about some of that uh, that today. So, thank you for joining us. And last but by no means least, of course, John, uh, pleasure to have you with us. Uh, if we could hear a little bit from you, that would be great. Thanks, James. Hi, everyone. I'm just watching all the names come across the bottom of the screen here. I've counted sixteen different countries. So far, a special cure to Danny from New Zealand. Go <laughs> New Zealand. I was 20 years in Aotearoa, so nice to see you got up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, well done. <laughs> um, so I'm, uh, my, I'm a uh, professor of clinical psychology at the University of East London. Um, most of my research for the whatever many years it's been now um, has been in this psychosis and antipsychotic area. I, until recently, I knew a lot less about antidepressants. So I've been learning in the last few years more about, about that. Um, I've got, I got really um, pulled over by, by the likes of Luke and, and James three or four years ago, because we had published um, the two, two, two of the largest surveys of people on antidepressants. The first one was in, was in New Zealand when I was still there, you know, about 2,000 people. And um, and we were finding that about fifty to fifty-five percent of people reported withdrawal effects if they were asked, which of course they often aren't in the real world. Um, and we also found that about half of those people were uh, describing their withdrawal symptoms as as severe. So that sort of research led led me to be sort of helping Luke James and other other people with the Public Health England review, which I'll. I'll leave Luke to talk about later because there's some quite amazing things happening in England at the minute. Um, there's some things we're not very proud of also, um, which we won't be talking about tonight. <laughs> um, but we are we are pleased that uh, we are, seem to be taking a lead at the moment on in this sort of area. So I, I've ended up as um, chair of the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, which is a great honour and a privilege. Swapnil is on the on the board with me. Um, Dad and Lucas and James, associate members. So it's a, that's a very important organisation which is trying to um, be a figurehead, really, in, internationally to make sure these uh, issues are, are recognised. I'm also um, part of the group of people who wrote a, a guidance 
for psychological therapists and counsellors, um, which I'll put a link up to it when I've finished talking, um, which which um, was very important to me because our profession had pretty much abandoned people, I think. Clinical psychology had sort of abandoned these issues, along with psychotherapists, to be honest, to the medical professions. And the medical professions were making a complete mess of it. Um, but we had we were being even more neglectful by not getting involved at all and saying it's not our business. So we have written a, a guidance for therapists and counsellors um, as to how to engage with their clients around these issues rather than say it's nothing to do with me. Um, so that's that's kind of an important document. And I guess overall I've always right from the beginning been not surprised anymore but amazed by how the extent to which we medicalize um, human distress and all of the problems that that causes. Um, in Britain, um, the figures will be not so different in most countries. Um, America's pretty pretty much the worst, but in Britain, we are at the point where now one in six people were prescribed antidepressants last year. And when you add the other ones like benzodiazepines, the figures get up to one in four. Um, higher rates for women, maybe we'll be talking about that at some point today, and higher rates in our deprived areas. So um, if you're a woman living where I live in Newham, um, your, your chances of being on antidepressants is probably 50%. Um, and that scares me. Um, so anyway, it's very good to be with you all today. I'm really looking forward to a, a really positive discussion. And, and it's good to see these issues finally, finally, coming out into the open after having been buried for decades. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of you for, you know, being involved in this kind of kicking off discussion, you know, this kind of setting the scene, this foundation is so important, I think, for the rest of the series in terms of discussing some more of the detail. So um, what I'd like to do now is kind of open it up to a bit of a, you know, panel discussion. So please feel free to, you know, input as, as, as you'd like to, according to your preference and experience. But what I'd like to ask first is, for your thoughts and reflections on some of the developments that you've all been describing, you know, and there have been some developments in the UK, some in the US, you know, we, I think the conversation about withdrawal is increasing in intensity, it might be slow, but this is the results of many years worth of campaigning. So, you know, can I have your reflections on where we've been and where we need to go? And, and also on, you know, your views on what we know, and more importantly, perhaps don't know about the experience of withdrawal? From the from the point of view of uh, uh, of the people of from my point of view and the and the people on my website, um, they're always very surprised about it, and often, um, well, they find they find the the symptoms very disturbing, and they and the. The combination of the surprise and the severity of the symptoms often causes them to believe that something has gone seriously haywire, that they've really suffered a a psychiatric collapse. So they'll call it a breakdown sometimes. And um, because of that, they might have gone through a series of um, attempts to find treatment and gotten all kinds of perhaps uh, subsequent drugs um, and had terrible reactions to them uh, until finally they realized that the, that the 
their doctors don't really know what's going on. And then they trace back their original problem to going off the drug. So, so it's a, it's a, it seems to be a slow realization process. Everyone who is, everyone who accepts the prescription for the psychiatric drug. Well, let me say most people who accept the prescription believe that they're going to help and, uh, and that their doctors will be a, a resource if something goes wrong. And when this doesn't quite, it, when, when the, this doesn't pan out in a situation of severe adverse reaction, they become quite disillusioned. And that's another layer of psychological distress. Uh, it, you know, it's a, it, people can be experience it, experience it as a real existential shock that there's really no medical safety net for what's happened to them. The sense of betrayal is very difficult. And, you know, all of this is lumped under depression, but it really should not be called a psychiatric disorder. Withdrawal is very, very different. Um, And it's it's an iatrogenic condition, which means that it's caused by treatment and people react emotionally to that to the discomfort and to the situation they find themselves in, they feel helpless and, and betrayed. When I was um, first going through withdrawal and I went to go and see my doctor, um, there was really complete denial. And I think that's a very common response. Um, I think that uh, there's obviously a lot missing in the training and that's been one of the areas that, and, and this review has focused on the need for greatly improved doctor training. Um, in this country, when people, um, when you do your go to medical school, you have a huge bank of questions that you're asked that come out of a multiple choice database. And when some analysis was done of that, it turned out that there were only three or four out of thousands that related to this question of withdrawal from prescribed drugs. So it's it's really sort of glossed over. And, and that's where obviously a lot of change needs to occur. And, and we see some evidence that that's being looked at. Um, and that's what I think of as, a, as an upstream problem, that we've got this issue of withdrawal. We've got the upstream issue of doctors not understanding it. We've got the upstream issue of the guidance not sufficiently recognizing it. Um, and that those two things need to be solved to stop the flow of people who are inappropriately prescribed and uh, and then end up in trouble. But we've got a huge downstream problem as well, which is all the people who are on these drugs who shouldn't be on them um, and all the people on these drugs who, who want to come off safely and how do they access services appropriately to do that. And, and I, I remember very clearly when I first entered withdrawal, I was in a clinic in London called the Priory and I'd been taken off these drugs um, pretty much cold turkey. And I thought, what's, I, I knew something had terrible had gone wrong. And the doctor denied it. And I went straight onto the internet and my heart sank as I saw these stories of people taking years and years to recover in some cases. In many cases, people recover much more quickly. But when you've been on for a long time and you're taken off quickly, it, it can take a long while. Um, and so, you know, the, the, it's fairly clear that we've got a multi-pronged approach that needs to be taken. We've got to make sure that um, the training is improved, 
We've got to make sure that the guidance is improved. And we've got to make sure that the people who need the help now can access that help. And it is quite wrong that the, the really the only reliable place for support has historically been the internet and peer support of others. Of course, peer support is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but it ought to be the medical profession that steps forward and understands um, they provided the drugs in the first place and then provides the support to help others uh, to come off. And obviously that is that is where a lot of attention is being applied at the moment. Yeah, I would really um, second what both Adele and Luke said. But from the psychiatrist's point of view, you know, I, I belong to a number of uh, psychiatrists, peer support groups where we are discussing among ourselves difficult clinical situations. And ever so often a case of... Um, Antidepressant withdrawal will come up and everyone is, is just flummoxed. We're, we're wondering what to do. And uh, one random psychiatrist will suggest uh, dropping down the dose by 50%, then by another 50% and stopping the drug completely within six to eight weeks, and which, is, which can be very, very problematic for a big percentage of patients. So I, I think we, we do need, certainly need more education among psychiatrists. I think there is a will to, albeit small, there is a will to understand this issue and try and uh, help patients through it. But I, I think this also leads us to a deeper issue within medicine, that is of how do we foster transparency and how do we build uh, a, you know, a, a tolerance for uncertainty? Because I, I think a lot of withdrawal is actually navigating uncertainty and maintaining us, you know, maintaining a good relationship and a, a good and transparent relationship with the patient. That when you don't have some answers, you're able to tell the patient that, you know, I, I don't know what's what's going to happen. I don't know what's the best way forward. All I can assure you is that I'm going to be available and we'll work through this together. So uh, I, I think that it, it does lead us to a deeper issue in medicine. And it's an issue that some medical schools have been building into their curriculum, actually, uh, of more, uh, more patient-centered work where the trainees are actually listening to what their patients are saying and are not very not so focused on what they already know from what they've studied back home. And also um, building this tolerance for uncertainty and communicating information clearly to patients in an understandable way, uh, meaning that it's not just jargon and numbers. I think if we could we could get doctors and clinical psychologists and everybody to sit with that uncertainty, Swapna, we would have far fewer people on the medications in the first place. I mean, the majority of people prescribed antidepressants is for mild and moderate uh, levels of depression for, for which the guidance says antidepressants are not recommended nor effective. Um, and, and the idea that depression is um, a response to depressing things happening seems to have got lost somewhere. Um, and that we all have uh, stressors from time to time. And the answer is not always a chemical one. Um, it's a terrible cliche, but uh, time is quite a good healer. <laughs> so, so the saying goes. Um, but at the minute, we're rushing to prescription pads at a ridiculous rate. And that, of course, has increased during the pandemic. We just had figures out in England 
saying that in the first uh, over a three month period, six million um, people were prescribed antidepressants, which is an increase of two or threefold over our usual astonishingly high rate. Um, but just just to go back to the people were texting at the bottom there in the chat about informed consent, um, which is hugely important. So let me just comment on that. Um, our surveys show that about one percent of people are told about withdrawal effects when they are first prescribed antidepressants. One percent. That is unethical and, and negligent. But it comes from the fact that the guidelines they are following are are so wrong. As Swapnil said, they've been described for ages as antidepressant withdrawal has been described as a, a, a self self uh, what's the right word. It, it, sorts itself out within two to four weeks and it's mild, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we've won that battle in England. Some of you have got to still fight that battle, but in England, we've got the Royal College of Psychiatrists to change its mind, having denied the reality for decades. Uh, last year, they did a U-turn and acknowledged that the research is actually correct rather than the opinions of a few, few powerful psychiatrists and the drug companies. Uh, nice guidelines here have changed. Um, so we're, we're getting that information out now. So um, GPs will no longer look up their guidance and find the wrong information. So that's a huge step step forward. And we're, we're hoping that the lead we've taken here in England might be followed um, elsewhere around the world so that pe people can start getting accurate information from the beginning so that fewer, I think fewer will take antidepressants if they knew what was to come later but also more people are likely to get support when they report the withdrawal to their doctors because they're not going to be told, no, no, that's the depression coming back. That's not the withdrawal effects. So we are making some progress here. There's another uh, hopeful activity over here which is being supported, and that's social prescribing. And I think that as we look over the next decade or so, we're going to see a tremendous impact, positive impact, from social prescribing. Uh, in this country, uh, a lot of funding has been released through the NHS to support social prescribing, meaning that you'll have what are called social prescribing link workers. These are individuals working with doctors' surgeries who will be individuals that can link that surgery with uh, other things that, that uh that patients may want to do before they start off on a prescription for drugs. So they may be prescribed things like gardening, or they may be suggested to join a choir, or they may be volunteering, or there may be other types of activities that are um, non-drug that are just more appropriate so that the doctor doesn't feel that they have to write a prescription. And I went to a very telling conference once, again at the BMA, and uh, it was about this, this issue of withdrawal. And a lot of senior doctors there, and they were, they were amazing to me because some of them were standing up and saying, well, we get these very demanding patients and they come in and they tell us they must have a prescription for this or for that. And, and we don't really have any choice. We, have to, we feel that we have to write a prescription for them. And I, I have some sympathy that patients can put doctors under a lot of pressure. But when it comes to making a decision to prescribe a drug, that is a terribly, terribly serious decision and potentially life-changing for that person who starts off on a journey of dependence and ultimately withdrawal, which as we many of us know can be quite life-changing. Um, and if, if at that moment the doctor had an alternative, 
Um, and obviously, there's, there are other talking therapies that, which are part of this mix as well. But if they've got more opportunities for alternatives, I think we will hopefully find that, that those are embraced and fewer people start off on this path. Um, but the problem is that we've already got 25% of the country on these drugs, and we've got to do something about that. We've got to now go through a process of reaching out to those patients, helping them, because many people don't realise that they're taking drugs that are potentially harmful to them if, if taken long term. That's a huge problem. So there's a whole outreach that, that needs to occur. Um, and then we've, we've got to have conversations and, and help them to withdraw. And, and that is a, a massive, massive task. And, um, uh, you know, I hope that some of the things that are going to happen in the UK will be helpful for other countries as well. It's not as though the UK is, is the only place that is trying to tackle this. Um, but we are hopeful that, that there are changes underway that, that might mean that in, in, you know, 10 years or so, things will look somewhat different. And I think social prescribing is potentially a big part of that. Thank you. Uh, I, a few of you there have mentioned differences in approach and differences in response around the world, and I, I feel it's important to kind of address that and pick that up from a perhaps a social justice or, or an equality perspective. And I, I know that Swapnil, you've done some work on, on this and some thinking about it. So I wondered if you could help us understand, you know, some of the issues that maybe other parts of the world are, are facing in terms of this challenging issue of withdrawal and dependence. Yeah, you know, that was, that's been one of my concerns since uh, I've started on this work of helping people taper uh, psychotropics, that there is only a certain percentage of the population that can afford to uh, taper their medications. For instance, uh, you know, when you work in public mental health settings in the United States, we get patients who are low income or are working full time. you know, the example that immediately comes to mind was a young woman on sertraline who wanted to taper it off, but who just couldn't afford to do it because she had to show up to work every day. So she made enough money to feed her kids. And and withdrawal does entail, like, uh, does need a certain amount of time and dedication to that specific uh, venture. So my, my solution to the problem is that, like, as John was pointing out, uh, for mild or moderate depressions, this uh, medication should just not be the first first line of treatment and um, potential withdrawal reactions should be factored in to the discussion while you know decision to take medication or not so i i think this idea of withdrawal should be introduced at the time of prescribing and the patient should think about it that when I am going to try and stop this medication, it's going to become problematic for me. So should I actually take it or not? Uh, I I think that's one part of it. And the other part of it that other uh, part that keeps coming up for me these days is when I try and think about tapering antipsychotics for young, uh, young black men. I am scared, even though I know that uh, they don't need to be on antipsychotics. I'm afraid that what if they have a relapse? What if they're seen on the street, like in a disorganized state or hallucinating, especially because of, you know, the tensions between law enforcement and how law enforcement interacts with with race. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. So I... I could be more cautious about that. And sometimes I bring it up with the patients uh, patients as well. 
and um, and we think about it together. But but this is a larger issue that um, you know IIPDW, Mad in America, all of us should be thinking about. That we need to make withdrawal strategies, or rather, we need to tailor withdrawal strategies for use in all settings. Um, I, I think that's that's really important. Yeah, thank you. That that is very important. And you know, one one of the threads that I'm seeing both in the comments and also in 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 what you're talking about is is the issue of uh, being believed when you are suffering someone that's uh, having difficulty with withdrawal. So you know, many of people have said, and I've experienced this myself. You go to your doctor, and they say it's nothing to do with the drug. You must be unusually sensitive. So you know. It strikes me there is an absolute wealth of experience on Facebook, on surviving antidepressants, on Inner Compass, Madden America. All these other sites have such excellent information. How do we go about convincing doctors and psychiatrists who you know, remain unconvinced? How do we go about convincing them that withdrawal is a very big issue, needs very careful management, and there is knowledge and learning out there that needs to be transferred? I wondered if any of you had any thoughts well, on that. Well, I think that uh, first we need to uh, understand that most psychiatric treatment is conducted by GPs. And uh, so talking, discussing uh, uh, problems with psychiatrists, discussing the, the systemic problems with psychiatrists doesn't necessarily even get communicated with GPs, especially in the United States where the medical system is decentralized. So um, many of the, um, many people have been uh, um, informed by mass media and by advertising and such uh, that uh, antidepressants are a wonderful, wonderful solution, uh, and they go and they ask their doctors for antidepressants. Um, so we have to counter that information. And the way that I, uh, the way that I see it is that we to to reach GPs as well as psychiatrists, uh, we we have thousands of ambassadors who can talk to the doctors, and those are the patients themselves. And I believe that uh, what we should do is to uh, uh, provide materials for the patients so they can present that to their doctors. And also we need to train the patients how to talk to doctors because even if they're upset about their symptoms or they have, uh, um, they become uncertain about the doctor's knowledge, confronting the doctor or raising your voice with a doctor just confirms a doctor's opinion that you have a mental disorder rather than some information that they might really need to present. So, um, so I would like to somehow uh, communicate this information to patients so they can take it to their doctors. And I think that that might be the most effective way to uh, the doctors don't want to hurt people, and they, uh, you know, if they they may not immediately react to uh, and agree with someone who says I'm having a terrible reaction to this drug, but they remember that and they might uh, incorporate that understanding into the practice going on. Um, so I, you know, I think that at this point there are so many people who are having problems that they can take this information to their doctors. I think um, if I can pick up on that, Adele, one of the things that we tried to do with CDP was to provide evidence summaries that people could download and print and 
take to their doctors. They're, they're actually in need of a bit of an update, and, and James and I um, and others must get on and do that. But still, on the, on the CEP site, you, you've got various things that you can use uh, in that regard. Um, I don't think doctors' practice, frankly, is going to change until both the training and the guidance changes. Those those are the two critical things. Um, hopefully, I, I also sit on the NICE Commission um, on Safe Prescribing and Withdrawal, and, and we're halfway through a process looking at all the evidence um, around safe prescribing and withdrawal, and, and hopefully that new guidance will take forward what has already been done. We, we saw a, a really important change around the recognition of antidepressant withdrawal, the severity and the, the duration of symptoms that was reflected in the, in the existing uh, depression guidance, CG90. But the new commission is going to come out with new guidance. Um, I'm also hopeful that uh, one of the ideas that was picked up, well, talked about before, around informed consent is going to play a much bigger role. Uh, it's interesting that over here, um, the, the GMC, which is the General Medical Council that, that regulates doctors and ultimately can strike them off, uh, has a new section on shared decision making. And within that are some very clear, some very clear language around informed consent. We would like to see what we call an informed consent agreement. And that is something that at the beginning of a prescription captures various critical pieces of information captures the diagnosis, captures that there's been a discussion about harms and benefits, how long the prescription is going to be for, um, that there is a plan at the outset of a prescription for coming off. There's no point in starting a prescription without a plan for coming off, given how we know these drugs behave. Um, it has the date for the next review. Um, it, uh, uh, it has advice for monitoring if there are any side effects and, and symptoms. Um, that would be a big step change, I think, if, if systems could be put in place so that doctors are required to uh, create such a, an agreement at the start of a prescription. And I'm not saying that that is going to happen anytime soon, but I think it's something that different healthcare systems ought to aim for. And with electronic health records, it ought to be relatively straightforward to, to implement and, and quick to do. I think that would be quite a game changer if, if we could achieve that at, at some point. I would hope that in the United States that uh, doctors would be influenced by um, what's going on in the UK and possibly Europe in terms of updating the information about uh, psychiatric drug withdrawal. But the United States, it's, um, again, very decentralized and um, doctors are very much on their own. They don't necessarily uh, even keep updated in their own specialties. Um, the, um, but, uh, the materials that you're producing in the UK could be very useful in terms of patients being able to inform their doctors, uh, with the latest developments, at least elsewhere, and perhaps put a seed of doubt in their minds about changing their practices. Um, one, once again, in the, in the United States, uh, one area that uh, needs to be that that might be amenable to uh, um, change is uh, is medical training, uh, especially of um, uh, the allied health professions uh, such as nursing and um, um, uh, 
physician assistants and such who often get delegated what's considered to be the easy task of prescribing antidepressants to the hordes that come in demanding antidepressants. Um, honestly, you know, in the United States, this is considered to be an absolute no-brainer decision when anybody shows up with you know, stress or insomnia or whatever to immediately prescribe an antidepressant. The, the idea of mild to moderate is just, you know, it's just disregarded completely. There's no, there's no effort to restrict uh, prescribing antidepressants to severe cases at all, as near as I can tell. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, that's the source of the, um, um, huge numbers of people taking these drugs. Uh, but then, you know, we also have to address, and, and there's no doubt that if they were prescribed less, there'd be less problem with withdrawal. But there's many millions of people taking these drugs right now who for, had no good reason to be on them and have been taking them for years. And so now, now, now I, I, the, the, the withdrawal problem is really in the, in the tens of millions of people. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a minor problem for public health, and that's that's why I think we are going to to win this this struggle because of the num the sheer force of numbers. Mm. Um, this is not a niche issue. This is affecting millions and millions of people. And one one other way that we can facilitate change, of course, is through the media, uh, and not just social media, but even the mainstream. Media. I mean, Luke and James and others have, have, with one of our large national newspapers here in the UK, run a, a, an ongoing campaign around antidepressants, which has which has reached many, many people. And just uh, this uh, Sunday coming, we are publishing a, a, a paper, a research paper, documenting uh, the numbers of people in on Facebook groups supporting one another, including Adele's work and and many others. And that's going to be covered on Sky News. Um, all day long on 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 Sunday, um, and just getting the word out that that way and normalising these issues by um, making them spoken about at every possible opportunity. Now I realise you don't all have the same access to that, but um, everybody can write a letter to the newspaper. That shows my age, doesn't it? No one, no one writes letters to the newspaper anymore except me. Uh, but but of course, there's Twitter and Facebook and all those other places where we can all continually to continue to shine a light on, on on this issue it's out of the it's out of the bottle now it's not going to go back in the bottle we just need to keep um, focusing on it all of us and to the extent that we that we can I think that um, people who are who are taking the drugs um, if they know that other people are having the same problem it's very helpful to them and I and yes getting you know getting that information out in the mass media is um, is useful. Uh, but that has been going on for decades. Sure. So um, the demand is huge. The uh, the uh, distribution of the drugs is huge, and the um, problems in coming off are also going to be huge in terms of numbers. Certainly, in the UK, we we've had a lot of publicity. I remember when I first came off, and James and I set up CP. Um, we um, we turned to the Times, and the Times ran a front page news story on withdrawal from uh, sleeping pills. And it was a big splash and it was followed up with six or seven articles after that, all, you know, first or second page. You know, this was the main headline for the Times and that's a big deal. 
And I thought, wow, we're really going to see some change now. I mean, you know, the times survived it. And, uh, and sure enough, absolutely nothing happened as a result of that. And I think what, what we wised up to was that, you know, you can have all the media coverage in the world, but you've got to line that up with awareness among policymakers and critically the support of the medical institutions themselves. Yep. So I think that one of the, one of the things that has worked well over here has been ensuring that we, we did eventually get the support of the British Medical Association for this. We actually got the support of the Royal College of Psychiatrists for, for many of the things that we're doing as well. Um, because when you turn to policymakers, who are they going to turn to to say, are these people telling me something sensible or, or is it nonsense? Well, they're going to turn to the head of the BMA, the president of the BMA, the president of the Royal College. And if those people are saying the wrong things, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really about uh, bringing all of these, these different institutions together making sure that everything is lined up. And only at that point, I think, will you will you see the sort of change that is beginning to happen here. I mean, I'm cautiously hopeful. I'm very conscious that, you know, in the UK, we've been working on this for many years. And yet, in concrete terms, there's not a huge amount that's happened. There's been some changes to guidance and, and one or two other things. You know, there's still a lot of expectation for what is coming down the pipe. But I, I do think we will see these things happening over the next few years. And... Uh, and hopefully that in, in 10 years we'll, we'll look back with, with some satisfaction. But there's a long way to go. I, I think what, what I'd like to kind of observe is that maybe five to 10 years ago, somebody new coming into psychiatry, if they'd done a, a web search or a research gate search for withdrawal, they would have come across a whole pile of papers saying it's mild and self-limiting and it lasts a couple of weeks and it's not a big problem and it's quite rare. Recently, because of the work of some of you here and many others, that, that there's been a, quite an influx, I think, of papers in psychiatric journals talking about the withdrawal phenomenon, not just for antidepressants, but for antipsychotics and benzodiazepines and, and other classes of drugs too. So, I think people coming new into this, if they have an interest in that and start to look for their information, it's it's there and it's saying this is a bigger problem than was previously recognised. And I think that, you know, a lot of that effort has come from the patient voice and Adele, your site and all the other sites on Facebook and people sharing their experiences and telling newspapers about it and recording interviews and telling friends and family. So I think I think this is a gigantic team effort that everybody's been involved in. And, you know, I do think progress has been made and that's incredibly heartening for someone like me that's kind of experienced this. There's a question um, that I spotted from Stuart Shipko in the, in the States um, who's a, a psychiatrist that I spoke to quite early on and was quite helpful to me. And he's asked, um, you know, how can a doctor make a plan to stop a drug when so many people cannot stop or get disabling illness when they try to stop? I think that's, that's in response to what I was saying earlier about um, this informed consent agreement. And the point of the informed consent agreement would be that you'd, you know, that these drugs should, if they are prescribed, they should be prescribed for the short term. And so hopefully, in most cases where people are prescribed them short term, coming off is, is more straightforward. You know, that's not always the case. But I think there's another point here, which is, um, which is around really the scale of this and what the appropriate approach is, given that if you've got tens of millions of people who've been on, for example, antidepressants for, in some cases, you know, a decade or two, um, it's not necessarily going to be appropriate for everybody to come off. Some people are going to find themselves in such difficulty coming off that it might be better for them 
at least to stay on for a period. You've got to be, you know, it's before you start that process, you don't know whether you're going to be one of the lucky ones who can come off in a relatively straightforward way or for whom it's going to be much more torturous and, and difficult and, and perhaps, you know, interfere with your functioning. And, um, and you know, I, I wouldn't want, I mean, it's, it's, it'd be very hard for a lot of people to, to manage withdrawal at the same time as they're managing their lives. And so, you know, I don't think there is a simple answer for, for everybody here. I think, uh, I think you've, you've got to, um, to, to take, to do this very cautiously and to make sure that, um, that it's all done at the patient's choice, that we don't have a system. You know, one of the risks, I suppose, with some of what we're trying to do is that we get a lot of doctors saying, right, I'm going to start taking people off. That, that would probably be a very bad thing. We, you know, we need, we need it to be done with the consent of the patient and, and at the patient's pace. And if they don't want to come off, they shouldn't be forced to. You know, I know that uh, Stuart Shipko has been very, very cautious in tapering and, um, and he still sees problems. Um, I'm seeing problems on my website, people, people tapering very, very carefully. And uh, they often have to take breaks and um, stay at one dose for six months or two years. Or um, it's, it's, This is really difficult. Uh, I have to say that most people probably will be able to come off with a very gradual taper, uh, as described by Horowitz and Taylor in their uh, 2019 paper about tapering antidepressants, um, which was followed by another paper about tapering antipsychotics. Uh, most people will be able to, uh, it's my belief that most people will be able to come off with those uh, very gradual exponential tapers. Um, However, there's going to be some people who have the dif- who have difficulties, and those difficulties can be pretty significant. Um, we really do need uh, to have um, medical professionals involved in in under in researching this process and understanding how to deal with those uh, those issues that come up. And that is one thing that's been lacking. Um, well, of course, as almost everything has been lacking, but that's another thing that's been lacking, is any attention whatsoever to the process of tapering, and the uh, and what and and what happens if there are you know, how how to deal with the pitfalls. Um, uh, we attempt on on my website. We attempt to provide techniques to deal with the pitfalls. But really, it, it, it's just, you know, all, all we can do is to suggest that um, people confer with their doctors and maybe slightly increase their, uh, their dosage or um, hold at one dosage. We, you know, we, you know, as, peer, as peer counselors, we don't have any ability to prescribe additional drugs or... Um, um, I mean, the the knowledge just isn't there to uh, to deal with with the with a bad result, um, and this really does need to be addressed because these people end up in the protracted withdrawal bin. So uh, there, there, there could be conceivably millions of people walking around 
with protracted withdrawal right now who don't know it because they've come off their drugs. They've, they've been feeling odd for years and um, nobody knows what their problem is in the, in the UK. There's a wastebasket diagnosis called medical, medically unexplained sim- symptoms. Uh, there's another diagnosis that might be used. That's uh, what functional neurological disorder. Um, again, these are, these are sort of like, we don't know what it is, but we're going to give it a name kind of uh, labels. Um, in the United States, who knows what these conditions are called? They, they may be called uh, um, um, de- uh, depression that's resistant to treatment. And then those people might be getting electric shock therapy uh, to, you know, for, for supposed uh, uh, treatment-resistant depression. Um, so, uh, so there could be people, many, many people wandering around trying to get treatment for something that really needs to be addressed on its own as an iatrogenic condition. Uh, again, the, you know, the, over you know, since the early 2000s, when the uh, the sales of uh, anti- antidepressants re- took off, followed by new antipsychotics and so forth, millions of people have been exposed. You're, I, this is a rolling total of hundreds of millions of people. So, um, um, I, 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 I'm certainly hoping that, uh, well, my, my sense is that it's now there's so many people been exposed and so many people had a bad result that we've reached a tipping point where it's really getting out into the general understanding and it's become, it's, it's growing into a consumer movement to demand better uh, patient safety in the prescribing of these drugs and, and more knowledge about tapering. Thank you all. Um, that was that was really helpful to talk about some of those issues. We're just past uh, seven o'clock here in the UK. So if it's okay, I'd like to move on to, to bring some viewer questions forward, if that's okay. And again, please, please feel free to jump in on these. Thank you to all of you that ask questions. We've, uh, of course, got more than we can answer, but we'll try and answer as many as we can, and we'll try and take forward those that we can't. So um, to kick off with, um, someone's asked, curious why we refer to it as withdrawal, which might get conflated with addiction, and who gets to name it? So I wonder if anybody has has any thoughts on that. I know for me, language is, is quite a thing around this. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts? For many years, um, this is sort of the table was set by addiction medicine. And for many years, addiction medicine called... Um, um, addiction and dependency, the same thing. They were synonymous. In recent years, it's, it's actually been recognized that these are two different uh, conditions. And um, this was incorporated into the DSM-5. Um, addiction is a, uh, well, I'll, I'll dep- dependence is... <laughs> Every psychotropic, any, any psychotropic, whether it's addictive or not, if you take it frequently enough, your nervous system will adapt to the psychotropic. And that, uh, as it adapts, it becomes dependent on the psychotropic. So, so if you take the drug away, then you have withdrawal. And that's whether the drug is 
you know, legal or not legal or considered addictive or not addictive. So physiological dependence, and I think that the people who are uh, having difficulty going off of benzodiazepines often encounter this with from their doctors. Um, physical dependence is independent of addiction. It's a difficulty in going off. And the, you know, the, the benzodiazepine people are, are sometimes accused of their doctors of being addictive and drug seeking when they want to have, you know, their prescriptions extended so they can taper. Uh, people who are taking, uh, who become in, uh, 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 dependent on opioids without even, you know, because of, uh, you know, recovering from an operation and having uh, uh, pain treatment, they become inadvertently dependent on opioids. And they, for a while, were lumped in with the people who were addicted to opioids. But now there's recognition by the FDA in, in the United States that um, opioid dependence is different from opioid addiction. Addiction is a, um, and I have my reservations about this too, but it's, it's, a, it's a psychological, it's sort of like a psychological state uh, in, in relationship to the drug. Uh, and, the, you know, and, and, and a person can be both addicted and dependent but a person can also be dependent without being addicted. Does that clarify it? That's really helpful. Thank you, Adela. And I think it's probably also worth mentioning, and this might be contentious for some, but some of you might have gone to your doctors and explained what's been happening, and your doctor will say, oh, it's something called discontinuation syndrome. Now, you know, discontinuation syndrome means something in medical circles that it may not mean quite in the same for service user or patient populations. So, you know, discontinuation is, is a, a, you know, a term which uh you know is popular in those kind of circles so it's it's a small language point but you may well hear that but i tend to say withdrawal and i know other people like me do let's jump in on, on that james which is uh i mean this is where language really matters and this is an area where i think patients have the right to feel pretty aggrieved by the use of language the historical use of language and the current use of language by the medical establishment and by Doctors. Discontinuation syndrome was a phrase conjured up by the pharmaceutical in, in, industry to minimize the withdrawal, to, to, to cover up the fact that antidepressants cause withdrawal. Um, it's shocking that that happened, and it's shocking that that, that language continues to be used. Um, and I'm pleased to say that in the UK, at least, there has been recent recognition and agreement by some areas of the medical establishment not to use that term discontinuation syndrome anymore it just shouldn't be used it's 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 wrong um uh where i'm also pretty unhappy is the ongoing denial by the medical establishment that antidepressants cause dependence there are many psychiatrists who will say that they don't cause dependence and will refuse to use that phrase and they'll say well they don't cause tolerance and they don't cause drug-seeking behaviour, and they don't cause drug escalation, things which aren't actually true. Um, we, we know that, that antidepressants can, what's called, poop out, that you can stop having the same effect in the same dose, so you do actually need a, a higher dose in many cases after a period of time. Um, but again, there is this obfuscation, this denial, um, this, uh, this tendency by 
the medical establishment to, to try and, and cover up these things. Um, but again, I think some of that is, is changing, but we all must make sure that, that we are very firm when we use this language and, and use the right terms and, uh, and not let our doctors get away with it. I just jump in and add that the, I think the important, one of the important things there, Luke, that you said was the origin of, of the term, and that it was a pharmaceutical term, and that raises the issue of the extent to which our medical professions, especially in America, uh, and especially psychiatry, has become enmeshed with the drug companies. Uh, and until they develop a proper ethical professional boundary between themselves and the drug companies, this sort of distortion is going to continue. Um, it's just important to name that, I think, because that's been the elephant in the room for a, a, a long, long time. And there's slow progress being made on that as well. I think more psychiatrists and, and, and medical doctors are recognising the need to separate themselves from drug company funding. I would say that there's um, a real lack of clarity in medicine about psychotropics in general. Uh, and this is uh, this has become clear uh, in terms uh, when the opioid epidemic emerged, and it became clear that there were many people who were inadvertently dependent on opioids. It's also true of the benzodiazepine issue, where pe people people were given benzodiazepines and told that they were antidepressants, and had no idea that they were technically addictive. Um, in general, medicine, medicine does not understand psychotropics very well. And, uh, you know, whether they're addictive, you know, addic addictive means that they've been, uh, a drug has been put in a legal basket called addictive. Um, and uh, it appears as though, let's say, the gabapentinoids are heading towards that basket. But 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 there's really no chemical distinction between an addictive drug and a non-addictive drug. Uh, they all may cause dependency if you take them long enough. So so you know the, what we're perceiving as the um, sellout of medicine to the pharmaceutical companies. Well, that has been you know, that, that is partially true, uh, or even mostly true, but also they just don't get it about psychotropics. They just don't get that if you apply them long enough that an adaptation is going to occur and withdrawal happens after that. Uh, in, in addiction medicine, there's a lot of denial about withdrawal symptoms as well. And, uh, and it's only recently that protracted withdrawal syndrome has become well, it's sort of semi-accepted in uh, addiction medicine, and and the um, the the incidence of uh, of uh, protracted withdrawal syndrome in addiction medicine is high. It's considered to be one of the main reasons people go back to the drug, which shouldn't be a surprise because that's what stops withdrawal symptoms, which you know, and that's known to be true for the psychiatric drugs. So. Um, so it, 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 this is like a, this is a much larger conceptual issue in medicine uh, than just the psychiatric drugs, but for sure because psychiatric drugs are prescribed as being very you know highly therapeutic and effective, um, there there are more hurdles for 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 us to jump over to educate the profession. 
Thank you all so much. I, I'm keen to move on because time's pushing on. So a bit of a different tack, but um, there's quite a few questions around how can I best support a loved one who has recently come off and, you know, is in the kind of early stages of dealing with that post-withdrawal period. So, you know, I wonder if any of you had any reflection on that. Well, it's, it's incredibly hard for families and loved ones to cope when somebody is going through certainly the initial stages of, of withdrawal and uh, and so many things can affect that person's behaviour, that person's thinking, that person's emotions, which are just down to the drugs. And I suppose that would be the first bit of advice to a family member is, is to realise that whatever you're seeing and hearing from that person and anything that you're, you're thinking is, is not really the person that you know, well, it isn't the person you know because... These are drug effects. These are not. These are not linked to to the individual, um, and and it will get better. Um, I th I think that that in my experience, um, it, having good family support has made an enormous difference to the trajectory of somebody's withdrawal. And it's certainly the case in my, in my case and others that I've come across is that where family members have, have educated themselves, have spent some time looking up. Um, the research, looking up uh, websites, talking to other peer support members, perhaps to some of the withdrawal counsellors that, that exist. There are wonderful people in the UK and elsewhere that, that do help and do do this. Um, and, and that enables the family members then to get into a position where, where they can provide understanding and support rather than what often happens, which is, which is listening to the doctor who may not necessarily understand what is going on. And may ascribe it to, to other things. So I think, I think uh, you know, realizing that it's not really your loved one, and educating yourself as best you can. Those are those are critical things uh, that you can do as a as a family member. I think that uh, family members can, should also understand that um, recovery from protracted withdrawal is extremely slow. And the person may uh, suffer frequent um, surges of symptoms um, that that may cause may, might cause a lot of upset. Uh, and um, I think that everyone uh, really needs to um, focus on the fact that the nervous system really does want to go back to uh, you know normal functioning and it rebuilds itself very slowly. Um, just having the, that support and understanding and the expectation of slow recovery, I think can help people a great deal. Might be worth giving a, a shout out to, obviously uh, Adele's site has got lots and lots of information, but there are other sites. The CEP site has information, has videos that we've specifically targeted at, at other family members. Um, and then the withdrawal project the in, in a, from in a compass initiative uh, has a has a vast amount of, of information to help family members um, educate themselves and, and support their loved ones and I, I think also I'd mention um, John and Luke you've both been involved in work with uh, psychological support for uh, you know people undergoing 
withdrawal themselves and, and family members. And, I, I, you know, I think it's important for us all to remember that there's a, there's a physical element to it. There's a psychological element to it. There's, a, there's an awful lot that needs to be addressed for people in, in the first stages of getting off, isn't there? It's not just a medical thing or just, uh, you know, fix your diet or, you know, there's a whole plethora of things that need to be attended to. I mean, the, the work that we've been doing um, for um, therapists, we've provided, and this has been led by Anne Guy over in, in the UK, um, and there is a publication at prescribeddrug.info, which has been published uh, through the APPG here in the UK, but also um, with other therapy organisations. So it's had a lot of support. It's been a long-term project, and it's wonderful guidance for therapists who are talking to their clients about psychiatric drugs and withdrawal. And if there are any online, I'd, I'd urge you to, to go and look at that. Um, but there is also something to be discussed around the appropriateness of traditional forms of talking therapy while someone is going through withdrawal. Um, often in this country, people are put into a CBT program, and, and that may be incredibly helpful for them when they're receptive, when they're able to, to cope. But when their thinking is as distorted as it often becomes during withdrawal, um, it can be very counterproductive to, to go through that experience, to go through a, a talking therapy, that, that kind of modality. Um, that's not to say that a, a therapist can't give one enormous support by, by listening and encouraging um, I mean, when I was going through the worst of withdrawal, um, I had two different phone lines that I would ring up. One was in the UK called the Bristol and District Tranquilizer Project. And the wonderful, wonderful Ian Singleton was on the end of the line. And every day I asked him the same question. Ian, this is really bad. Am I going to get better? Yes, Luke, we're going to get better. I just needed to hear that from somebody. Um, and then the, the saintly Vanessa Fredericks, who, who ran uh, Recovery Road, she was the other person. And, and poor Ian and and Baylissa, it was a sort of um, ping pong between the, the two of them for, for a couple of years. Um, and so, so that reassurance when you're going through withdrawal that this is temporary, it will pass, it may be hell and it may have turned your world upside down, but you're going to get there. Yes, yeah, so on my, um, my website, we have a section for success stories of people who have recovered from withdrawal. And um, there are probably about 150 now. Uh, and many of these people had been on my website for years and um, asked the same question, will I ever get, you know, will this ever be over? Will I ever get better? And reading their stories is really fascinating because you can go back and you can see the history of all the questioning that they went through, um, all of their existential doubts. Um, I, I mean, it's very heartbreaking because some of these, because sometimes uh, the the disability causes um, uh, failures of marriages and businesses. And people lose their jobs. Uh, it's heartbreaking, uh, but uh, they it, it, it's 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 amazing how they reassemble themselves. And I think that that's very very instructive. Uh, Besides showing that people do recover from withdrawal, it's a very long, painful process, and I wish that it didn't happen. So I want to encourage everybody to 
slowly taper if you go off your drugs and uh, do not ever cold turkey or skip doses to taper. Yeah, that, those messages are so important, Adele. And, and I, I think I'd add myself that, you know, don't be discouraged by setbacks. You know, I've found that this is not a linear process. You know, I, I didn't get better a little bit every single day. Some days I did well and some weeks I did terribly. But try not, easy to say, but try not to be discouraged if you feel you're not moving forward. You are. It's just slower than you realize. But you know, I think it's important that we all support each other through Facebook groups and various websites and whatever. But, you know, I, I think maintaining some hope for the future is very important. Well, Swapnil, a viewer has asked, you know, with your work in deprescribing, what have you done? or Have you had any pushback from mainstream psychiatry about it? And if so, what have you done about that? I, I think that has made some pushback. Um, I mean, a very clear example was when my colleagues, John Cahill and Rebecca Miller, we published this paper called uh, Deprescribing Antipsychotics, a Guide for Clinicians. Uh, there was a response published in the same journal titled Deprescribing Antipsychotics, Witless and Dangerous, which I thought was incredible because my my you know my stance on deprescribing antipsychotics is pretty uh, pretty gentle and extremely careful, rooted in shared decision making and recovery oriented prescribing. So uh, I was yes. So there is uh, short answer is yes. There is a certain amount of pushback, but at the same time there are a number of colleagues uh, who are interested, cautiously interested. Let me say. Um, I, I think because uh, being interested in a venture like deprescribing psychotropics involves being honest about not knowing a lot of things, uh, which can be which can be challenging for a number of individuals. So, um, yeah, but but certainly I have been um, you know encouraged by the amount of interest that psychiatrists have shown in the. Uh, shown in the topic. Uh, what I've heard most often is we know that this person is on too many drugs. We want to help them taper off. We don't know how. That's that's what I've heard most often. Um, I'm conscious that we're uh, in the last five minutes of our, our time here and uh, I'm sorry we didn't get through too many questions, but the, the questions themselves are so good and the responses need to be quite uh, quite detailed. So, you know, we will try and endeavour to uh, address more as we go on. I, I have seen some frustration in the chat that we didn't get into details today. You know, I'd reiterate this is a series of discussions. This is the first one in a series and we will get into more detail. It was important and necessary to try and set the scene and we're not all in the same place on this. Some of our viewers are new to this, so uh, I just wanted to try and address that. Um, I want to thank you all so much for watching and attending and for your questions and for the lively chat that's happened today. It's been great to see you all get involved. Um, I do want to mention we have our second discussion arranged for March the 12th and for the next town hall we will be discussing the mechanisms that underlie withdrawal itself. So we'll be asking what the scientific models and theories tell us about why withdrawal occurs and how we might respond. And we'll be posting more information about that on Madden America in the next couple of weeks. So, so keep an eye there. Um, we are developing a list of topics to cover. And if you have thoughts on that, you can get in touch with us using the email address withdrawal at maddenamerica.com. Um, because we want 
viewers to be as involved in these setting these discussions as we go on as much as possible. Um, if you have found today useful and you want to help contribute to more of these discussions, then um, please consider donating to help us do more of these. So just visit, visit maddenamerica.com, click the donate button. I am aware that many of you watching have already donate, donated and we're so hugely grateful for your support to help us put these on. So thank you so much. Um, a quick reminder that if you do have questions arising from today, um, we do have our page of resources, which we're updating. It's maddenamerica.com forward slash PDW. There are links to the various groups that we've mentioned, including surviving antidepressants, Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry, in a compass. There are quite a few of the papers linked there that we've referenced to in this discussion. Um, and really, you know, I, I want to thank the panel all for giving up their time. Uh, early for some, later for others, but you know I've got a lot out of hearing you all speak, and you know I'm so grateful that we could get together. So, uh, in the last couple of minutes, I, I just throw it open to you to share any final thoughts. Well, I'll I'll just say what what I always say, which has now become a bit of a cliche. The struggle we're involved with is is a very very difficult one, and and some of you have been involved with it almost as long as I have, um, and how difficult it is, is matched by how wonderful the people are that you meet along the way. Um, and I just want to say that's how I feel about my fellow panel members and lots of people that I've seen putting their remarks down the bottom. We're all in this together. And yes, do it slowly, carefully, with support, but know that there are literally millions of people going through the same thing and there's lots of different ways to support one another through like Adele's website and other people's website and in a compass and let's talk withdrawal. Hopefully the Institute can play a bit of a part, but we're all lots of people in this together. Um, and there are ways through it. So thanks for letting me be part of this this evening. Um, just just to, to echo what John has said. I mean, it's been, it's, it's hard to talk about this last period and use the word pleasure, but there has been an immense pleasure in getting to know so many of you, so many good, intelligent, energetic um, people who have just devoted so much of their time pro bono, not un unpaid, um, to this to tackling this issue. And it, and it brings out the best of humanity, I think, when, when we all collectively encounter a problem that we realise is a, is a deep, deep societal injustice. Um, and we find that there are so many who are prepared to step forward and, and, and try and help. And, and um, it's been a pleasure working with so many. There are so many who aren't on today's panel, but there'll be many others in, in future panels. And, and you all know who you are. So um, thank you. Yes, I want to thank everyone for attending and um, James and Shira for doing and Lucy for doing such a wonderful job on organizing this. Um, again, I do believe that uh, we patients are our best ambassadors. Um, I would urge people to join uh, a Facebook group about your particular drug if you're on Facebook. Uh, we will be uh, distributing information that goes uh, is also distributed by the Facebook groups, and that's probably the most extensive network of information about um, this withdrawal issue and whatever uh, campaigns we might devise. Um, 
the uh, I, I, I'm on Twitter as Altostrada. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer questions about individual tapering uh, on Twitter. <laughs> it's just not possible. Uh, but uh, I, I will uh, be tweeting out um, links to papers and other relevant information for people. Well, thank you so much for organizing this. Uh, I think it's a great introduction to what needs to be a very long and what is going to be a messy conversation. I, I hope we keep up the complexity of the conversation and, and really uh, don't find, don't look for any simple answers, honestly. So, um, yeah, this, this is a wonderful introduction and it's it's great to see the you know community coming together and talking about this. Uh, I, on my end, I'm going to keep up the work and keep talking to my colleagues, keep advocating, keep educating. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for watching, for spending your time with us. Uh, thank you to the panel and to uh, Lucy and, and Shira. Um, and I hope you might consider joining us again for our next discussion on March the 12th. But uh, I've really enjoyed spending the time with you. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.